the Gospel of John, chapter 8, starting with verse 1, and it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2, Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. Verse 4, They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, so that they might have some charges to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Bracket, bracket. Bracket, bracket. <laughs> Those brackets indicate that's the end of the text that uh, is not in every manuscript. Yeah, the, the text that is in question. Do you ever wonder if you can know the truth? Jesus said, you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. So dwell on truth with us. Sunday at 11 a.m. I'm Daniel Bodwin. And I'm Brenton Powers. We're Christians and missionaries. And we'll be answering your commonly asked questions from the Bible about God and humanity and salvation. So join us for the Dwell on Truth show every Sunday from 11 a.m. to noon here on KSCO. Well, hello, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time you're listening, whether you're listening to this show, which is the Dwell on Truth show on KSCO, 11 a.m. Sunday mornings, or you're listening to the podcast at another time. We welcome you to the program. My name is Brenton Powers. And I'm Dan Bodwin. And yes, thank you guys for joining us for another week Um, If you've been with us before, great. If it's your first time, that's great too. We're going to be continuing our trip through the Gospel of John today, where we've been working for, oh my goodness, how many months have we been doing this now? It's been six months. We started started recording at the end of July. Here we are the end of January. That's crazy. Yep. It's crazy that we haven't killed each other already, but (laughs) no, no, that's called the grace of God, which we talk about a lot on this show. So yes. Yeah. I think we're an example of people who are able to keep the main things, the main things. Yes. And the essentials are what unite us. There's the old saying, amen. uh, In essentials, unity in non-essentials, diversity, and in all things, charity. That's right. That's right. And yeah, we agree on the essentials, on who Jesus Christ is and what he did, on the problem that we have with God because of our sin. And scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we agree that Jesus Christ is the one and only solution to that sin problem. And uh, what a blessing it is. So you need to repent and believe the gospel because Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave. And we are evangelists, so we are in mm-hmm. one, in unison on that gospel message. We want to get that out of the way. Yeah. It's not in the way, but we want to make sure that we <laughs> share the gospel. At least once during the program, we're probably going to be sharing it a lot more oh, yeah. as it relates to the passages each week we dive into. And today's passage is no exception to that. 
But today's passage is an exception to uh, some of your Bibles might have Mm -hmm. a footnote. We are in John chapter 8, looking at verse Mm -hmm. 1 through 11 today. And my Bible, the English Standard Version, has a bracket where it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, which is the last verse of the last chapter, through chapter 8, verse 11. So, the Bible publishers wanted to be honest with us, and I like that about our Bible. Mm-hmm. Our, our modern Bibles have um, footnotes when there's something that isn't in all the manuscripts that we have. Now, how many copies of the New Testament do we have, Dan? Two or three? No, we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 57 or 5,800 copies of the New Testament. And when I say copies, we're talking, and when we say manuscripts, we're talking about handwritten, hand-copied versions of the New Testament. And some of those are tiny little scraps of paper. There are a few of the oldest that are like that. Written on papyrus. Yeah, written on papyrus or some other kind of material. Um, The earliest ones, I think, are all papyrus, if I'm correct. Mm. Um, Some of them are pieces of a book. Some of them are entire books. Some of them are collections of types of books. And some of them are complete copies of what we call the the New Testament now. So it's a a combination of each one of those things. Yeah, and so there's all adding up together, it's 1.3 million pages of handwritten copies. This is before the printing press. Yep. The New Testament, specifically we're talking about today, was written uh, in that first century by eyewitnesses or those who walked with the eyewitnesses and interviewed them. John himself was an eyewitness, but there is a question, and we're going to be honest about this question. Did John write this? We find it in the middle of John in our Bibles, but there's some manuscript collections that have this passage in the middle of John. Some have it at the end of John. Some have it in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, I believe. Mm -hmm, I think that's about right. So there's definitely a question of where it belongs. And on some people's minds, on your heart, Dan, is there a question of if this belongs in the Scripture? There is. There is. There are, you know, intelligent Christians and scholars that disagree on this. I am of the opinion, based on what I've read and heard, that this probably is an original story of Jesus, you know, that was kind of looking for a place to be included. You know, that's, I think, why it shows up in different places within the Gospel of John and in at least one collection, Mm -hmm. actually, in the Gospel of Luke. Mm -hmm. People that were eyewitnesses you know, had, or people that had heard about Jesus from eyewitnesses had heard this story. And for some reason it it may, it, it, it wasn't included in the original manuscripts to our best knowledge. Well, the when you say originals, we don't have the original. Correct. Uh, they're called autographs, the ones that were written by the apostles, which is a good thing because people probably would enshrine them and worship them. Oh, if yeah. We, if we had them. Absolutely. And you know what? It, it, I was thinking about that when you brought this up when we were talking earlier. Yeah. Why don't we have the originals? Because mm-hmm. I do think that people would turn them into an idol. Mm-hmm. There are other important things, you know, connected with scripture that the same thing, for instance, we haven't, I don't believe we found the wreckage of Noah's Ark. Some mm. people have tried to claim that. Lots of people have looked for it. <laughs> that could turn into an idol. The Ark of the Covenant. Uh-huh. 
You know, despite what the movies may tell us, Indiana Jones did not find the original and stick it in a box somewhere. Yeah. We don't have that. That's definitely something that people would have turned into an idol, you know, if God had, you know, left it in the world. Well, Israel did that with the pole that the serpent was lifted up upon that people, if they looked to it, they would be healed. And that was a brass pole. And they mm -hmm. did, in fact, find that pole and worship this pole. Yeah. This is in the Old Testament times, so it's written about in the Bible. People worship that, mm -hmm. and so God did, commanded that they would destroy that yeah. because people turned it into an object of idolatry. I, I want to say it was John Calvin who said that the heart of man mm -hmm. is an idol factory. And it really is. We're going to find something to worship, even yeah. if it's not God, even if we claim to worship God we can put other things that are controllable yeah. <laughs> kind of in his place. Some uh, might accuse us Bible-believing theologians as believing that the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. Yeah, that's that's not true. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's we do. who God is, one God, three persons. But we do honor his word. Mm -hmm. There's a psalm that says God God honors his word above his name. And Jesus uh, teaches that it's by the word of God that we're sanctified when he prayed in John 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And so we uphold the word of God as Jesus does. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So our position I mean, I assume this is your position. Let me ask you, Dan. Do, <laughs> yeah. do you also believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired, and useful for training and teaching, and therefore God has preserved His Word, that none of it has been lost? Correct. Correct. It's uh, The real question is how God has preserved His Word. What method has He used to preserve mm -hmm. it? And I think looking at the questions around a passage like this, actually tell us something, teach us something important about how God chose to preserve his word. If I could just give a, a short illustration of this that I like to give on the streets. Please. Um, a lot of people have the idea in their head that the um, transmission of the scripture, I don't say translation, translation is bringing from one language into another. That's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about transmission, how the, the, the uh, texts, the manuscripts have been passed down over time. But a lot of people have gotten this, like the telephone game illustration. I'm sure you've heard this. I've heard this on the street. I heard this on the street. This is repeated way too many times and people don't bother to check out whether Correct. this claim is true, but go <laughs> ahead. Yeah. I just remember hearing it specifically a week and a half ago in Monterey by a guy who was walking onto the pier and I corrected him on it. But, yeah. um, but it's this idea that there's a single line of transmission. So one person person gets the Bible. They pass it on to a next person. The next person gets the Bible. They make a few changes. They pass it on to the next person. They make a few changes, pass it on to the next. It didn't work that way. Nope. There was not a single line that the biblical text was passed through. Instead, you would have a copy of, say, the Gospel of John. And when the Gospel of John was received, they would make multiple copies of that for the multiple churches that were out there and send those texts out. So say the church in Rome would get a copy, the church in Philippi, the church in Colossae, the church in Corinth, mm -hmm. et cetera, you know, mm -hmm. because I mean, all those Paul's letters, those, those are names of cities where churches were planted. Yeah. And they went to Africa, Asia, yes. Europe, Asia, they were spread Europe, out yes. far and wide. 
all over the place. So rather than being a straight line, it was like a spider web. So we don't have so what we have is we have copies from all different points in that spider web, from all different geographical locations around the world. And some are very old and some are yes. very uh, are much newer. But over yeah. the period of 500 yeah. years, we have older manuscripts. I just want to make this side point. Oh, please do. Some uh, textual critics would say the older are the most reliable because those are closer to the date of the original Correct. writing. Others Correct. would say, well, we have an abundance of, of, old, of newer manuscripts that mm -hmm. confirm that there hasn't been any changes in 99.8% of the majority text. So mm -hmm. there is debate among scholars or over which are the most reliable. Yeah. The important point, I agree with you completely. There, there are different methodologies. There's different philosophies in weighing manuscripts and how important they are. This, I think, is the most important thing in how God chose to preserve his word. There was never a time in history where anybody had the ability to gather up all those manuscripts and change them wholesale. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea that are in people's heads. The Bible got changed. Some monk changed it back in 500 AD. I've heard that argument. No, not true. Not true. Even if that monk had been able to gather up, say, a couple dozen handwritten manuscripts in his geographic area of the world, there were thousands in other geographical areas. There's no way that they ever could have been gathered up and changed yep. wholesale. So we can gather now with close to 6,000 manuscripts when we have a new translation the scholars that work on that translation compare those yep. and they can see those and 90 plus percent of the differences are tiny things, spelling changes, spelling differences. And keep in mind, there weren't like standard dictionaries back there. Sometimes you have mm -hmm. the same author spelling a word differently within the same manuscript. Right. There is inconsistency. It doesn't change the meaning if someone spelled something wrong. No. Exactly. And punctuation or word order, which doesn't mean this doesn't have the same impact on language as it in Greek as it does in English. That's true. Yeah. So mm -hmm. huge percentage of things that make no difference on the meaning of the text. Right. So what we're saying, just to put it in mm -hmm. layman's terms, because I don't want to talk over anybody, yes. is you can trust the Bible, which is very, very accurate. We can trust that God's Word has been preserved because people yes. scrutinize over this book more than any other book. Absolutely. And uh, just to put it, I've encountered this question over and over and over again, and it's usually put in a very sloppy way like mm -hmm. the broken telephone analogy. That's the most common. I'll give kind of a sloppy analogy to refute that idea. You know, your grandma's favorite recipe. <laughs> She's copied it. She knows how to make her favorite recipe. She just throws a pinch of that, a dab of that. And when people say, oh, this is great. Would you write down your recipe for me? I want to make it. She writes down five copies and gives it to all of her five friends and her five children. And there's 10 copies out there. And they get passed down to their families. And, and sometimes someone might add an ingredient or something, you know, uh, mm -hmm. instead of writing salt, they'll write sugar and 
<laughs> if you were to gather all of these, not just 10 copies you have now, but the derivatives of those as well, yeah, pull yeah. them all together, and you could tell, okay, here's someone changed from salt to sugar, and uh, we can tell that that's not right because it's it just doesn't taste right. It's a mistake. Yeah. And so you, you develop these senses for comparing and contrasting, and really the, the amount of texts in our Bibles that is in question is point two percent yes um and so we're not we're not going to accept the argument that well because you aren't a hundred percent sure that this belongs in your bible then none of the bible can be trusted yeah that's a really sloppy argument and i would i would think that people have a another motivation for rejecting it other than textual evidence absolutely absolutely i i think this really is in my opinion this is well, it should be in all of ours, but this is the best way that God could preserve his word. Because once again, never a time when anybody could have really changed the text. And that is not the case with Mm -hmm. most other holy books. But anyway. Can I quote from a couple of sources? I did some research. Please do. One of my favorite commentators, and friends, neither of us are textual experts, but we know how to read those who are. We know how to read commentaries, and and there are people that we trust. Dan has his sources. He he sent me a good John Piper link, Mm -hmm. where John Piper gave his opinion on one side. I've listened to David Guzik and J. Vernon McGee. Yep, another good one. Both of them say that this does belong in the scriptures. So I'm not so convinced by the same sources that Dan is convinced by, mm-hmm. but... But all these people would agree that the Bible has been preserved. Yeah, absolutely. And both of us would. Absolutely. I wanted to quote something from David Guzik here. All of this evidence suggests that scribes were often ignorant of the exact position, though anxious to retain it as part of the four Gospels. This was quoted by from Tasker. They knew it belonged, but they didn't know exactly where. Yeah. Some ancient Christians, such as Augustine and Ambrose, omitted the story, not so much because of the textual evidence, but because they thought it made Jesus appear to approve of sexual immorality, yeah, or at least not to regard it as serious. I don't buy that. But maybe, hey, we might have lost some people in talking about the textual evidence, <laughs> but now that I'm mentioning this is a story about sexual immorality— we might be getting some of those listeners back yeah. on this on this station. They do talk about stuff like that. They so, do. Hey, let me just say, if you're the kind of person that you want evidence, there's thousands of copies of the Bible in Greek that you can go and learn how to speak Greek and sort out the evidence and go over the minutia and the... Well, there's the minuscules and the majuscules. They have to... Majuscules. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that also has to do with the form of writing used in the manuscripts, whether they were all lowercase and uppercase or all uppercase. Yeah, we could go, we can go way. It's over my head. Yeah. We can go way into the weeds on this, but. (laughs) Well, you can tell what's been troubling us because I mean, what's at stake here. This is important. Oh, it is. Right. Absolutely. There's nothing essential in this that we can't find elsewhere. Also in scripture, as far as the character of Jesus, the way that we're saved, the kind of sin that Jesus can forgive. Mm -hmm. There's nothing unique in this passage doctrinally or relating to the character of Jesus. But I think this story does illustrate um, some powerful truths that 
if you as a listener struggle with sexual immorality, if someone listening has committed adultery and you're feeling the weight of your sin upon your shoulders and the sense of condemnation for that, and you wonder what Jesus has to say about that, Mm -hmm. this is a great passage where I believe you can discover the heart of Jesus. Absolutely. But why why don't we read the text? For that purpose, I think this is an important text. I want to now proceed past all those prefaces and say, let's dive into this as if that it's a 100% true story. Whether you do or not, I I don't care. Yeah. I, I do believe that it's a real story about Jesus. But let's go ahead. Should, do we just want to do one verse at a time? Yeah, let's go. let's go through it. So once again. Um, The Gospel of John, chapter 8, starting with verse 1, and it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. For the sake of the putting a button on the the brackets actually started in the verse before that everyone went to their own home, and here's the other half of the sentence, new chapter. Also note that the chapter divisions and chapter numbers and verse numbers are not in the originals. That's no, added no, they came, much later to make it easy to find. Yeah, five or six hundred years ago only, right? Something like that. Yes. Not that long. Anyway. Yep. So, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. That's probably where he spent the night. Mm-hmm. He had uh, earlier said that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his yes. head. Jesus was homeless. Maybe someone <laughs> listening to this is homeless And uh, God wants you to know that Jesus knows how you feel Mm -hmm. out there in the cold, in the under the elements, and maybe sleeping underneath an olive tree. Yes, Uh, Jesus has been there. He has. Verse two. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. So setting the scene here, some people find it interesting that the teachers in that day didn't stand at a pulpit or on a pedestal and preach down to the people. Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of times rabbis would just sit down and the students would stand around and listen. So that's what Jesus does here. Now, the scribes and Pharisees, they are a strict sect of the Jews that previously were already planning to kill Jesus and were trying some way Mm -hmm. to find an accusation against him. And so it's notable that these are the people that brought this case to Jesus. But in the case of a real woman, this is a real situation that seems kind of weird, right? They brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, placing her in the midst. They're trying to catch Jesus at something. So here's the trap question. Verse 4 and Mm -hmm. 5. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him. So their motives were not pure in doing this. They were trying to catch him at something. This they said to test him so that they might have some charges to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. 
And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Bracket, bracket. Bracket, bracket. (laughs) Those brackets indicate that's the end of the text that uh, is not in every manuscript. Yeah, the, the text that is in question. So that is a weird situation. Why would they bring this woman to Jesus He's not one of the religious rulers. He has no official authority over her fate. As far as what they think. As far as what they th- ultimately yep. he does. Yep. But as far as what they think, he has no official authority. And he's in the middle of teaching the people. Why would they choose that moment to bring an adulterous woman before him? And another another comment I got to throw out there, another question Um, She was caught in the act of adultery. Doesn't adultery take two people? Where's the man? (laughs) That's the elephant in the room. That is the elephant in the room. If you caught someone in the act of adultery, there has to be another partner Mm -hmm. that's guilty. And so something's fishy here. Yeah, something's very fishy. The commentary uh, by David Guzik says that this has all the earmarks of a trap. Oh, yeah. She was trapped in this situation, and the Pharisees let the guy go. They're really not caring about justice. No. What they really care about is perverting justice, trying to get Jesus in the hot seat with the Roman authorities, because at this time, mm-hmm. the Jews didn't have the legal right to execute criminals. No. They weren't practicing stoning. So they're trying to either get Jesus in trouble with Rome— by saying she should be stoned, and then they can go to Rome and say he, he's he's advocating. He thinks he's a king that can execute justice apart from you, O Roman authorities. Mm-hmm. Or they're trying to get him in trouble with the Jews who want to obey the law of Moses. If Jesus goes against that and says no, don't stone her. They basically they want to trap him with a yes or no answer. And yeah. how many times is it that someone asks a question that there isn't a simple yes or no answer? You have to have a little bit more nuanced answer to see how this dilemma can be solved. But they don't want to hear yeah. anything other than yes or no. Yeah, they came in with a motive, and the motive was not the answer. The motive is getting Jesus in trouble. My goodness, how many times have we heard this on the on the street, too, mm-hmm. where people are going in, they really don't want an answer. Yeah. They just want to try to catch yeah. you. You know, it just reminds me, I had a situation um, last week, last Friday night, I believe it was, I was in Palo Alto and I had a situation like that. And we had a couple, a couple other guys there and he wanted to ask about aliens. He came up when this atheist came up when I was in another conversation and wanted to talk about aliens. Do you think aliens are real? Do you think they're not real? And okay, give me the evidence right now. And I'm like, okay, what kind of evidence would you would you be willing to accept? And he didn't want to answer that. Okay, no, you said you have evidence. Give me the evidence right now. Well, that's a big long question. I have a full DVD here that I could give to you for no, you you said you had the evidence. You want to give me the evidence now. Yeah. And when I wouldn't give him the answer that he wanted, then he showed his true colors. Well, that's because you're an idiot and this and that mm. and F you and gave mm. me two middle fingers and you know, and he did this at the top of his voice to make a scene and then walked off. Was he really looking for an answer? No. Why would that upset him if you can't provide evidence of aliens or no, non-aliens? Well, it's, it's, it's unreasonable, unrational. For the same reason that the Pharisees asked this question to Jesus and tried to set him up. Mm-hmm. This guy was trying to set me up. Not that I'm putting myself on an equal plate with mm-hmm. Jesus, no. but... 
I could tell that this person's motives weren't pure. It was very clear from his behavior. Jesus, obviously, being God in human flesh, knew that, so didn't give them the answer, either of the answers that they wanted. Yep. Now, as we read historical uh, accounts in the Bible, as we read these narratives, mm-hmm. one of the good ways to kind of look at it from different angles is, yeah, put yourself in the shoes of the different characters. Do you relate to Jesus being given a trap question? Mm-hmm. As followers of Jesus, there's going to be certain points we can draw from that. If you're a Christian here today and you have someone putting you to the test, I would say look to Jesus and his wisdom in answering this is amazing. But uh, before before going to his answer, I want to let the tension hang in the air here and put yourself in the place of the woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. We've all been guilty of breaking God's law at some point. Oh, yeah. Many of the laws, I mean, there's 613 laws written down by Moses, laws of God in the Old Testament. Ten of them are the famous Ten Commandments, and most of the ten, if you broke them, they're capital offenses. You could be stoned if you rebelled against your parents. You could be stoned for adultery. You could be stoned for murder. You could be stoned for bearing false witness. If you're trying to accuse somebody of a capital offense who's innocent, Mm -hmm. you will end up getting the punishment that you're trying to accuse them of getting. So Jesus doesn't challenge that she was caught in the act of adultery. Yeah, and he knew. This woman was guilty of it, but put yourself in her shoes for a moment. Being thrown to the feet of Jesus, I'm not sure if she knew Jesus or if this is her first interaction with Jesus, but she was caught in a trap of, oh my goodness, there's these legalistic guys that are condemning me. They're bringing me to some teacher who uh, says that he is the king of the Jews and and the Messiah, and, and certainly God must be against my sin, her conscience coming down hard against her, Satan himself probably also pointing the finger, and they say this person claims to be the Son of God and they want to trap him. How does the Son of God see me in my sin? I've been caught. Have you felt that shame? Have you felt that guilt? That's hanging in the air here. It is. It is. And Dan and I aren't finding much common ground with the Pharisees, other than that they say they believe the Scriptures. Oftentimes, people will throw a moral dilemma in front of Jesus or in front of us Mm -hmm. and say, what about the pedophile? What about the the murderer who just prays and repents at the last minute before he dies? Will God accept him? Is God just? And they'll put God on the hot seat as if God is the criminal, Mm -hmm. and they're the good guys that get to judge God. In some ways, that's what these Pharisees are doing. They're trying to judge Jesus by throwing someone who's guilty in front of Jesus, almost as a virtue signal that they, we're not adulterers, we want to condemn the adulterers, we're the good guys, and we're going to say that she deserves to die, what do you say? Are you good? Are you going to virtue signal like we are, Jesus? Just, Just a thought that they might be trying to do that. Yeah, I think they did. I think they were. And I think that there's one thing that all of us can remember from this situation You know, there's adultery was one of those crimes that was punishable with the death penalty. And there were a couple other crimes that were punishable with the death penalty in Jewish law. But think about it from this point of view. You know which sins are actually punishable with the death penalty? All of them. Every sin against God separates us from him. Every sin against God, not that there aren't, there are some sins that are called abominations that are taken more seriously, but any sin 
is rebellion against God and deserves eternal punishment. So maybe you can stand up and say, well, I've never cheated on my wife. Jesus said, if you even look with lust, you commit adultery in your heart. Well, I've never killed anyone. Even if you've hated somebody, you've committed murder. You deserve the death penalty Mm -hmm. for your sins Mm -hmm. too. Yeah. So you are in the, in some ways, in the same place as this woman. This is a Sunday morning show, so I, I don't want to go too <laughs> too graphic in case someone's driving their no. children to church. We should, probably should have given a warning. We're going to be talking about sins of a sexual nature. The cross-reference you gave was from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the famous sermon. Yes. He said, you've heard it's written, do not commit adultery, but I say if you look at a woman with lust, to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Yes, Matthew chapter 5. And in the same sermon, he said, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. And so the Pharisees, they had an outward righteousness. They tried outwardly to look righteous. He said, but they're like whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. Mm-hmm. Each of us knows, according to Jesus' standard, he raises the bar. He doesn't make yes. it easier for us to say, yes, I've lived according to the law. He makes it so all of us realize we're all guilty, if not of doing the actual act, but of fantasizing about it. I mean, mm-hmm. which which one of us warm-blooded men can say we've never looked with lust? <laughs> Yeah, A lot of women would admit to that. Some women don't struggle with that as much as they may struggle with wanting to be looked at with lust or other desires they may struggle with. Um, But this one, particularly for the men, Mm -hmm. is one where none of us can say that we're blameless. And uh, not just the one sin, but I would say the number of sins condemn us. All of our sin combined. If you were to count up the number of times you've looked with lust in your life, how many thousands of times could that have been? And that all of that together. I can't count that high, you know, by God's grace that has changed over time, but oh yes, I'm guilty of that. And and all of us are, we're going to have different Mm -hmm. details. We're going to have different flavors of sin that we struggle with maybe more or less than somebody else, but every one of us is guilty. Every one of us is deserving of God's judgment. And sexual immorality is more than just committing adultery. There's, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't enjoy spelling out all the different ways that people can sin sexually, yeah. but uh, whether you're uh, having sex with someone who's married or whether you're married and um, not engaging in that with your spouse, but with somebody else, or premarital sex, or mm-hmm. homosexual sex, mm-hmm. or bestiality, the Bible even mm-hmm. talks about. Um, or pornography. Pornography that would be mm-hmm. looking with lust. Yes. But this woman was guilty of committing the act of adultery, kind of a graphic story. So we have to talk about it. Um, so Jesus' answer, verse 7, as they continued to ask him, and let me draw that point out. They were continuing to ask him. It wasn't just like, hey, here's one question, and then they're silent. They're like, what do you say, Jesus? What should you do with her? What are you going to do with her? She's guilty. Everyone knows she's guilty. What are you going to say? They're and taunting Jesus, him. Jesus had hecklers too. Yes. <laughs> and I like what Jesus does. He was sitting down, remember, but mm-hmm. he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And then he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So we have something that he did say recorded, 
but it doesn't say what he wrote down in the ground, which I'm really curious. What do you, what did he write? Dan, do you know? Um, I don't think any of us know. He has not told us in his word. And I bet there'll be a lot of people asking that question when they get to heaven. <laughs> I know what he wrote. No, no, no just mm-hmm. kidding. I can't say that I know, but I have my theories. Yeah, a lot of people do. We could speculate, you know, knowing Jesus, how he quoted the law, mm-hmm. he could have written the Ten Commandments on the ground, similar to how the finger of God wrote the original Ten Commandments on stone. He could. He also could have been writing down the secret sins of some of those people that are uh, were around him about to throw stones at the woman. Yep. Those those sins that he knew about as God in human flesh that they had never confessed to anybody. Yep. There could have been some men looking down and saying, oh, crud, <laughs> he knows about that. Uh-huh. I'm out of here. Yep. <laughs> you know? And it says, when they heard him say, let him without sin cast the first stone, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones and then to the younger ones. So, or he could have been just doodling, drawn a cross. I don't know. Yeah. We can only speculate. It, It is kind of fun to speculate. Yeah. What would be so convincing about the one statement that he spoke in combination with the fact that he bent down over and over again and wrote on the ground something? I don't know. Maybe he wrote a circle and said, whoever's without sin, stand in this circle. (laughs) Probably not. Who knows? (laughs) But what we can know is how he responded, and that is an amazing thing. And the kind of mercy that he showed to that woman, you know, I will not condemn you, go and sin no more is the kind of of mercy that's available to us mm. through Jesus. I think more than anything, that is the takeaway mm-hmm. from this message, from this story, that though God, though, and, and this is the interesting thing that somebody else, uh, one of the other commentators I listened to talked about, he who was without sin cast the first stone Jesus was without sin. Mm -hmm. He was the one who had the right to cast that stone, and he didn't. Mm. Instead, he said, go and sin no more. And, And oh my goodness, Jesus has the right to judge every one of us for our sins. And he could, but instead he came and offered mercy ultimately through his blood shed on the cross. And oh, that's so that's so powerful. And I think that we should we can even if we are sinful like this woman who was about to be stoned, we can be forgiven no matter what we've done, no matter how bad we think we are, how sinful we are, we have that forgiveness, that mercy of Jesus Christ available to us. Very comforting for those of us who are believers in Jesus, mm-hmm. that this scripture, it upholds the what it says in Romans 8, 1, that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are trusting in him. Amen. But that's the question. Are you in Christ Jesus? Does he condemn anyone, or is Jesus's MO with everyone? Uh, there are some conditions here. I would also want to backtrack a little bit and ask, this is an important question, and I think will help our listeners understand the gospel, how it works a little better. Mm -hmm. Does Jesus just arbitrarily choose to forgive this woman and other people he doesn't arbitrarily choose to forgive? 
And I'm asking this because some will hear you say, Jesus had the right to condemn her. Mm-hmm. They'll think, well, if he's without sin, he's he should be throwing a stone because he is without sin, and he's saying, let him without sin cast the first stone. So therefore, is Jesus not letting justice be done here? How is this just and merciful? How can it be both just and merciful? Well, I don't think we can see both the justice and the mercy in this act. We see both justice and mercy ultimately carried out in the cross, Mm -hmm. because it's at the cross that we see God's justice because all of the all God's anger and hatred and wrath towards sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross. Yeah. But we also see his mercy in him taking that punishment on his on himself rather than pouring it out on us. As as you've heard me say many times on the street, you know, every sin will be perfectly paid for. The question is who pays? Right. Do you pay? Do you trust in Christ and his sacrifice pays? So there will be perfect justice and there will be mercy and love as well. Yeah. I bristle sometimes when someone makes them exclusive. Mm-hmm. They say, you know, you don't want justice, you want mercy. And that's true. But there are scriptures that say that both are being accomplished here. In other words, correct. And this is a dilemma that the gospel solves, as you beautifully explained. The cross is where justice and mercy meet. But Mm -hmm. uh, just to give the theological foundations for this from another scripture, in case someone doubts Jesus can show mercy and justice, Romans chapter 3. This is Paul the Apostle laying out the case that we considered righteous with God through faith alone, apart from works. And someone would say, how is that just? Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means the calming, the satisfaction of his wrath and justice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He passed over former sins. And this woman's case of him passing over her sins uh, is is an example of God didn't execute justice on this day, but it was to, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's key. I'll read that again. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Amen. So it's a both and, never an either or thing. Yes. It's not like God is is being unjust to forgive us. Another cross-reference, sorry, I'm on a roll with scriptures here. <laughs> 1 John 1, 9, which is a great verse. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful yes. and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. So both sides of God's character must be perfectly demonstrated and are perfectly demonstrated in the cross. Right. And I would disagree with you that his justice isn't being displayed here because on on this ground, that when everyone left and it says mm-hmm. it was just Jesus and the woman standing there, Jesus says to her, woman, where are they? That is, where are your accusers? 
Mm -hmm. So the law requires that every matter be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. That's true. The fact that the witnesses were not standing behind their accusation, that they left, means that Jesus doesn't have a case against her on the basis of eyewitnesses. They said originally she was caught in the act of adultery, but Jesus just took his time, wrote something down, said a simple principle, which is true, and everyone left, so there's not enough evidence to condemn this woman if this was to be considered a legal trial, which it really wasn't because it was all made up. But I think that's the legal ground on which Jesus could say on this day, uh, neither do I condemn you. Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Now, maybe someone's thinking back to the time when they're guilty and their conscience is condemning them, and then they have Satan condemning them. You know you're guilty. No matter if anybody saw it or not, God saw it, and God will judge the secrets of men's hearts, the Bible says. There is a judgment. Mm -hmm. It's appointed for man once to die, and then the judgment. If they get away with something in this life, because man didn't see it, don't think that you're going to get away with it in the next life on that basis, because God is a just judge, and he must have a legal basis on which to uh, show us mercy. So that's my Brenton Powers way of explaining (laughs) how Jesus is not being unjust while extending mercy here. Yeah. Well, I would take a little bit of a different angle on that, but that's okay. Not something we need to go into in depth, but what we do want to just remind everybody of is that God is both a God of justice and a God of mercy, and he has demonstrated both of those in the cross, and which one will you experience when you walk out of this world and into the next one? Mm -hmm. Will you receive God's justice? or will you receive his mercy? And we hope and pray that it is his mercy that you will receive. And that's really the core reason for this show, is that we want to see people um, saved. We want to see people know and experience the grace of God through Jesus Christ and have their sins forgiven so that one day we can see them in heaven. Yeah, that's a great conclusion. Unfortunately, I have a couple more points I want to make <laughs> from the text <laughs> that I, I think are—I'll I'll put them in the way of a question. Mm-hmm. And it's looking at the red letters, what Jesus said here. Let him without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Was Jesus saying that we cannot judge if we're also guilty of breaking God's law, that we, we can't say anything and correct anybody about their sin? Uh, that doesn't seem to fit the context at all, because, no. of course, all of us are guilty of something. Right. And Scripture does say to judge with a right judgment, mm-hmm. um, not that we can never judge. It does say that we shouldn't judge, you know, self-righteously or hypocritically. Yeah, and that the same standard we'll use, we use against others will be used against us. Yeah. Also going back to the uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which I believe that would be in Chapter 7. Yeah. And of course, that would be that would um, apply very well to the way that the Pharisees were acting, because mm-hmm. there's one consistent message from Jesus about the Pharisees, was calling them hypocrites, mm-hmm. pointing at everybody else's sin, and even though they looked pretty on the outside, their hearts were were dead, their hearts were right. were filthy, and Jesus knew that. Mm-hmm. And he called sin, sin. He did. He's not, he's not saying adultery is just fine. Go ahead and oh. continue in it. He called it sin. And he showed us how we're all guilty of some sin. 
The mm. other the other point I wanted to draw out is when Jesus said, "From now on, sin no more." Was he saying that's possible to be sinlessly perfect? No, I don't believe he was. What's the sense in which this is even possible? When I was a teenager, I didn't think that was possible. So I kind of rejected Christianity on that grounds that well, Jesus said, go be sinless. I can't do that. So why even try? Well, what, what did Jesus really mean by this? Well, I think he's talking about repentance. That has to do with a, a change of mind. Um, that's really what the word means, a change of mind or a mm-hmm. change of direction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's turning instead of walking toward sin, um, loving sin, planning around sin, living a lifestyle of sin, having your eyes fixed on the world. We take our eyes off of the world and we fix our eyes on Christ and that, and we change our direction to walk after him. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, every one of us will skew to the side, to the right or to the left on occasion, Mm-hmm. But our whole direction and our whole thought process and our whole des- uh, our whole set of desires in life is changed completely because of that act of repentance. And yeah. even though that woman, I'm sure, sinned after that, I think it's likely to say that she did turn from those sins mm-hmm. and was going a different direction, mm-hmm. even though she's not, you know, always true north like none of us are. Yeah, I, I agree that the call is to repent. And that is a change of mind, which will lead to a change of life, change of direction. If if it's a godly sorrow that you have for your sins, then there is a, a desire, at least, to turn from your sins. And then there's it's coupled with faith, though, oftentimes in Scripture, like in Acts 20, 21, Paul said that he testified both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 6, 1 says that that's an elementary teaching, the doctrine of Christ, uh, the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. I think about it this way. Repentance is turning from sin. Faith is turning toward God. Mm. You know, it's, it's not trusting in yourself, but transferring your faith to the living God for your salvation. Yes. And it's there's fruit that will come from that. Like John the Baptist who preached repentance, he said bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Yeah, I'm I'm sure you've seen if you're anything like me Brenton and I know you are in many ways, you've seen that fruit grow and mature through your Christian mm-hmm. walk. I mm-hmm. know when I first repented and trusted in Christ, I look at the way my behavior was then. And I look at the way my behavior is now and uh, that ability to stay facing true north mm-hmm. has, has definitely changed mm-hmm. over time. And I'm in a different place now than I was then. I'm sure you could say mm-hmm. the same and probably give specific examples, Brent. I still fail, uh, but my, my sensitivity of my conscience is a lot more sensitive. So the things that uh, maybe some a new believer might not even feel guilty about. I I feel yeah. guilty about because God keeps putting the finger on uh, the issue in my life that He wants to deal with. And as mature believers, we may have a sense that God leads us in repentance and confession and cleansing, and and we we keep shorter accounts with God. We don't go and backsliding for weeks, months, years. 
Um, although my teenage years, I question whether I was really saved or not. God knows the answer to that because yeah. uh, I didn't see oh, re- repentance in my life. I, I professed to have faith, but I didn't have fruit that showed that I was repentance. And we say fruit, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of a non-Christian who never heard that term before. It just means the product of your faith and repentance. Yeah. I mean, what does your changed mind produce? A changed life. Yes. Now, that's the effect of repentance and faith, but the cause of our salvation is not living successfully free from sin for X number of days or weeks or months, but it's the change that happens moment in, the, in a moment when you're born again, yeah. when you re- truly repent and put your trust in Christ, something changes. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you, mm-hmm. gives you a new heart with new desires, you come alive. It's hard to explain. I just want all of our listeners to experience that. It's called regeneration, and you must be born again, Jesus said. And this is why we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like this woman, we're all guilty before a holy God, and only Jesus can take away our sins. Amen. Yeah, so just a reminder, folks, you know, if you have not yet called out to God, if you have not repented, Um, turned from your sins, if you have not fixed your eyes on Jesus and trusted him alone um, as your one means for salvation, your one means for forgiveness of sins, your one means toward right relationship with God, we pray that you will do that. That's our, our ultimate desire is not that we just throw information at you, but that we give you truth that God will use to speak to your hearts, to change you like he's changed us, to transform you from the inside out um, so that your soul might be saved, so your heart might be changed, and, and so you can experience the joy that there is in right relationship and worship of the one true God, not only here, but in the next life in heaven as well. That's what we desire for you. And thank you so much for joining us today. If you have any questions that you want to ask, you can reach out to us on Facebook under uh, OAC NorCal. We have a group and we have a, a page on there. You can reach out to us at oacnorcal.org. And we've also got a couple of email addresses. OACNorCal at gmail.com. So God bless you. God bless you guys, and we hope we'll hear from you next week. We are Open Air Campaigners, OAC Missionaries here in Northern California. We'd love to help you take that next step, turning to Jesus or following Jesus if you've already turned to him. Tune in again next week for Dwell on Truth. It'll be every Sunday, 11 in the morning, or listen to the podcast at oacnorcal.org. This episode has been brought to you by faithful Christian supporters of Open Air Campaigners. You've been listening to the Dwell on Truth show, recorded, edited, and broadcasted by Brenton Powers from the Dwell on Truth studio. For more missionary media, including audio, videos, and other visual arts, go to dwellontruth.org.